6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapter 2 through chapter 6, verse 8. Let's get into the book of Isaiah. Last time we covered the uh, introduction and background notes. I'll try not to be repetitive. In fact, on the one hand, I like to take our time and we, you know, get into it. On the other hand, we want to keep an eye on the fact that Isaiah does consist of 66 chapters. So knowing that we have other goals besides the book of Isaiah, we'll take some portions and move right along. Stopping to probe those areas that are of particular interest to our own special orientation. So last time, if I'm correctly informed, we made it through chapter 1. Is that right? And um, I thought we'd gotten a little further. That's why I was anticipating getting to chapter 6 tonight. But, but uh, we'll take it as it comes and see how it goes. Chapter 2 of Isaiah. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Again, remember his focus. His focus is on the southern kingdom, on the house of Judah, and very specifically the city of Jerusalem. Thirty different titles of Jerusalem are used in the book. And again, Amos has got nothing to do with the prophet Amos. It's a different word in the Hebrew. Both the first and last letters are different. Nothing to do with one another. It shall come to pass in the last days. Aha, see, here we have our attention. We sort of zoom through Isaiah, but when we get the last days or the latter days, we shift into first gear and pay more attention, don't we? It shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all the nations shall flow unto it. Really, has that ever happened? Will it happen? hasn't happened yet. It will happen in the future. Isaiah will have a lot to say about this. One of the things that we will have hammered into us by the time Isaiah is through is that God is not through with Israel. God is going to rule the world from Jerusalem. Jesus Christ will assume the throne of David, and Isaiah says a great deal about that. And don't let anyone sell you the idea that that's an Old Testament idea superseded by the new. That's nonsense. The promise of Gabriel to Mary underscored that, that Jesus was to sit on the throne of David. He has not done that yet, yet he will. God has said it, and he will do it. In fact, one of the things you can do if you're taking notes is this would be normally a good time to deviate into Acts chapter 15. In the interest of time, we'll move on, but I'll just summarize what happens. In Acts 15, there's the famous Council of Jerusalem in which the issue that was being addressed was, does a Gentile have to become a Jew to be saved? It was some 20 years after God had opened the door to the Gentiles, that vision of, uh, with Peter and the sheet and all that. And still, after 20 years, they were running into this flack by the Judaizers that if a Gentile wanted to become a Christian, he had to become a Jew first. And Paul said, no way. And that became a big dispute. So they, he went to Jerusalem to get that resolved. I'm always amused because we always have that presented as if the council was determining the outcome. I don't read it that way. I think Paul would have gone on had they not agreed and done what he wanted to do anyway, knowing Paul. But clearly they call it the Council of Jerusalem. And of course Peter and James are dominant in that chapter where they defend the idea that a Gentile is not under the law. 
But what everybody misses in Acts 15 is a secondary issue that's really primary to them. The issue is, is if a Gentile does not have to become a Jew to be saved, what's to become of Israel? And at your leisure, if you'll read the speech by James, the brother of Christ, the leader of that council, he quotes from the Old Testament and the specific thing. Well, let's look at it. I've gone at this far. Acts 15, the council at Jerusalem. And I've summarized up to about verse 13. And after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared how God first did visit the nations to take out a people for his name, and to this agree the words of the prophet, as it is written, After this I will return. After what? After what? After I call out a people from the nations for my name. See? And I will return and build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will build again its ruins and will set it up. The tabernacle of David. That the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the nations upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the age. The point is, the secondary issue that we often miss when we go through Acts 15 is that God is not through with Israel. Anyone that has trouble with that idea should read Romans 9, 10, and 11. Three chapters where Paul nails that home. But we'll move on. Back in Isaiah, verse 3. And many people shall go and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. This looks to a period when the world will be instructed from the temple. Not the temple about to be built. First temple, Solomon's temple. Second temple, sort of Zerubbabel is then ultimately expanded by Herod. Idiom called second temple. Third temple, presently underfoot, presently ready to be built. That's the one that the Antichrist will desecrate. It's what we might call the fourth temple, the next temple, the millennial temple that's being dealt with here. He will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations, and he shall rebuke many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. What a dream. That dream is emblazoned well, on the UN and many buildings. As a dream of mankind. Will it be realized? Not until the Prince of Peace is running things. Much as we'd like to think otherwise. It won't happen until then. Verse 5. O house of Jacob, come ye and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Therefore thou hast forsaken thy people, house of Jacob, because they are filled with customs from the east and are soothsayers like the Philistines. And they please themselves and the children of foreigners. Their land also is full of silver and gold. Neither is there any end of their treasures. Their land is also full of horses. Neither is there any end of their chariots. Their land also is full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands. That which their own fingers have made. Now as we read this, of course, Isaiah is talking about the idol-worshipping nations of that time. But as we read that, recognize that we are not excluded. Just because you don't have a carved image sitting on the mantle at home, I hope, (laughs) 
doesn't mean we are not guilty of worshiping the works of our fingers. It doesn't have to be a carved idol. It can be the space program. It can be our advances in science. Not that these are to be disparaged. Don't misunderstand me. But putting the works of man ahead of the works of the creator of man. That's what an idol is. Anything that gets between you and God is an idol. It doesn't have to be in the old-fashioned idioms. It can be in other forms. And uh, we see it right and left. And the mean man boweth down, and the great man humbleth himself. Therefore forgive them not. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust for the fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty. The lofty looks of men shall be humbled, and the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down. The Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon everyone who is proud and lofty, and upon everyone who is lifted up, for he shall be brought low. And upon all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up, and upon all the oaks of Bashan, upon all the high mountains, and upon all the hills that are lifted up, upon every high tower, and upon every fortified wall, and upon all the ships of Tarshish, and upon all the pleasant pictures, and the loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be made low, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. Well, that doesn't require much comment. It speaks for itself. In Isaiah's eloquence, it gets right to us. We understand what he's saying. But notice that the root of all sin is pride. What God hates is pride. When we get to Isaiah 14, we're going to discover the source of all evil. The Satan. And where did sin start? In his heart. With the five I wills, I will be like the Most High. The pride and the arrogance of Satan is at the root of all sin. That's why God hates pride. That's why God uses leaven as a symbol of sin. Because it corrupts by puffing up. And it's exactly what pride does. Pride is the root of all sin. Yes, love of money, I understand. But the point is is that you'll see all the way through the scripture, if you're alert to it, you'll realize that God hates sin indeed, but very specifically, he hates, above all things, pride. That will all be brought low. And the idols he shall utterly abolish. And they shall go into the caves of the rocks, into the holds of the earth, for the fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty, when he ariseth to shake terribly the earth. Turn to Revelation 6, verse 16. I'm going to work very hard at not making this a study of the book of Revelation. But it won't be easy because you're going to discover that Isaiah and the book of Revelation are so intertwined. But just to refresh your memory on your review of the book of Revelation, you may recall in the sixth seal, Revelation chapter 6, verse 16. Fifteen, the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains of the mighty men and every slave. So they will hide themselves in the dens and the rocks of the mountains and say to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth upon the throne upon the wrath of the Lamb. Now as you read that in the book of Revelation, the writer in the book of Revelation takes for granted that you have a command of the Old Testament. The reason Revelation is troublesome sometimes because we haven't got a command of the Old Testament. But to the extent you have, it will be familiar. And one of your most helpful books is Isaiah. Revelation speaks of the Holy Spirit as the seven spirits which are before his throne. That's a strange idiom to New Testament ears, except Isaiah chapter 11 explains that. You'll discover as you go through Isaiah, many of these idioms used in Revelation come out of the Old. 357 direct quotes in Revelation from the Old Testament, many of them from Isaiah. This particular verse, in back to Revelation chapter 2 verse 19, echoes, of course, in a sense, Revelation 6.16. In fact, 
Those of you that recall from our Joshua study know that the book of Joshua, while an absolutely accurate narrative, is also a model, an allegory, a foreshadowing of the book of Revelation in many ways. And even there, where Joshua, you know, the Oshua, could be Jesus in the Greek, leads God's chosen people to dispossess the land of his usurpers. He battles seven nations. Those nations ally themselves under Adonai Zedek, the Lord of Righteousness, the false leader. And Joshua defeats him in Beth Horon, chapter 10, with signs in the sun and the moon. And the defeated kings hide in caves, saying, rocks fall on us in Joshua. So it's interesting. You'll st- the more you study Joshua carefully, the more you realize it anticipates structurally and idiomatically the book of Revelation. But we'll keep moving on. Verse 20. In that day, a man shall cast his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they have made, each one for himself, to worship to the moles and to the bats. I don't know why I pick on the bats, but anyway. To go into the clefts of the rocks, into the tops of the ragged rocks, for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty, when he ariseth to shake terribly the earth. So this is end time stuff. It's out of Revelation 6 and following. Cease ye from man whose breath is in his nostrils, for wherein is he to be accounted of? So that's Isaiah's second chapter. These early chapters in Isaiah are heavy-handed. Isaiah is calling to count the spiritual condition of Judah and Jerusalem. And he continues chapter 3. The whole national disintegration. Chapter 3, verse 1, 4. Behold, the Lord of hosts doth take away from Jerusalem and from Judah... The stay and the staff and the whole stay of bread and the whole stay of water. The mighty man, the man of war, the judge, the prophet, the prudent and the ancient. The captain of the fifty, the honorable man, the counselor, the skillful craftsman and the eloquent orator. And I will give children to be their princes and babes shall rule over them. I'm always fascinated. You find this several places in the scripture that an idiom of the disintegration of the society is that the children are running things. And parents, if that makes you uncomfortable, it should. I don't have any answers. I'll keep moving. Anyway, verse 5. The people shall be oppressed, and every one by another, and every one by his neighbor. And the child shall behave himself proudly against the ancient, and the base against the honorable. What Isaiah is saying here, this is upside down. It's not the way it should be. You see, for the child to assert himself over the ancient. In other words, instead of respecting his elders, it's the other way around. And it's interesting that as we look at our society today, whatever biblical yardstick you use, we're in bad shape. There's two measures that come to mind. This one, for an example, the, the rebellion and the dominance economically. If you're a, a, a consumer merchandiser, you know that the young market is where the action is, right? The kids have the money to spend. The other yardstick, of course, is homosexuality. It's classically all through the Bible been a measure of the degradation of a society. Verse 6, when a man shall take hold of his brother of the house of his father, saying, Thou hast clothing, be thou our ruler. Let this ruin be under thy hand. And that day shall he swear, saying, I will not be a healer, for in my house is neither bread nor clothing. Make me not a ruler of the people. For Jerusalem is ruined, and Judah is fallen, because their tongue and their doings are against the Lord to provoke the eyes of his glory. To show of their countenance doth witness against them. And they declare their sin like Sodom. They hide it not. And here again is this expression. Drawing a comparison of Jerusalem and Sodom. Using Sodom as a spiritual blow. Woe unto their soul. This is the first of eight woes. Woe unto their soul. For they have rewarded evil unto themselves. Say to the righteous. 
that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. Woe unto the wicked, it shall be ill with them, for the reward of his hand shall be given them. As for my people, children are their oppressors, women rule over them. I'm not going to comment on that one with a ten-foot pole. I'll let it speak for itself. O my people, they who lead thee cause thee to err and destroy the way of thy paths. The Lord standeth up to plead and standeth to judge the people. The Lord will enter into judgment with the ancients of his people and their princes. For ye have eaten up the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What mean ye that ye beat my people to pieces and grind the faces of the poor, saith the Lord God of hosts. And he continues in this vein. He's just pronouncing judgment on Judah and Jerusalem. Moreover, the Lord saith, because the daughters of Zion are haughty, and walk with stretched forth necks and wanton eyes, walking and mincing as they go, and making a tinkling with their feet. Therefore the Lord will smite with a scab the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will uncover their secret parts. In that day the Lord will take away the bravery of their tinkling anklets, and their headbands and their crescents like the moon, the pendants and the bracelets and the veils and the headdresses and the armlets and the sashes and the perfume boxes and the amulets, the rings and the nose rings. There's one you're probably not guilty of, girls. The festival robes and the mantles and the cloaks and the handbags and the hand mirrors and the linen wrappers and the turbans and the veils. Sounds like Isaiah dumped one of the purses open. Every time I go through something like this, I'm reminded of the Greek word. In the, this is Old Testament, Hebrew, but in the Greek, the word cosmos is the word that means to bring order out of chaos. And it's the same root that we get the word cosmetics. So I just had to point that out. Vanity. Vanity, vanity. And Isaiah, of course, is dealing in the idiom of that day. But in this sophisticated audience, it doesn't take any commentary or amplification to apply this to today. And it shall come to pass that instead of the sweet fragrance, there shall be rottenness. And instead of a girdle, a rope. And instead of a well-set hair, baldness. And instead of a robe, the girdling of sackcloth. And the branding instead of beauty. Thy men shall fall by the sword, and thy mighty in the war. And her gates shall lament and mourn. And she, being desolate, shall sit upon the ground. Isaiah calling their attention that their vanity, their, their aspirations are going to be brought to naught, that they're heading for judgment. On the one hand, we're primarily interested in how it might apply to us. On the other hand, I want to keep some historical perspective here. Isaiah is writing at a time just prior to, but about the time that the northern kingdom, Israel, is going into captivity. The Assyrians are dominant about 722 B.C. They take captive the northern, the, what we call Samaria, or the northern kingdom, or called Israel. Isaiah is preaching and pushing and prophesying on Jerusalem and Judah, the southern kingdom. By the time we get to chapter 13, Isaiah is going to be talking about not only the captivity that Judah is about to inherit with Babylon, but even goes so far to describe the destruction of Babylon. And when we get into Isaiah 13 and 14, we'll we'll get into all that. What's interesting is Isaiah will be prophesying the fall of Babylon before Babylon's even an empire. At the time he's writing, Assyria's out of the heavies. Babylon's a little city-state that's a pawn of Assyrian politics. And it's a hundred years later, after the fall of Assyria, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar rises to power. And uh, Isaiah will write about Nebuchadnezzar's fall long before he's even risen. 
which must have made his writings bizarre to his readers at the time in some respects. But okay, we got to chapter 4. The context is pretty straightforward. There's obviously a very clear, direct, local application by Isaiah to his people, to Jerusalem. Bear in mind, Isaiah now is a friend of the king, probably his cousin. Uh, He was intimate with the high priest. He's a man of rank. He's very eloquent, has the largest vocabulary of the prophets. Almost 2,200 words, different words used in the book of Isaiah. But his focus is Jerusalem. He's the court preacher. He's speaking against Judah and Jerusalem. That's his focus. But obviously being inspired by the Holy Spirit. And also, obviously, as we read this from time to time, the shoe pinches pretty bad. The shoe, you know, the old expression, right? So it fits, and we should uh, take that to heart. There is a short chapter. We have six verses. Chapter 4. And that day, seven women shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own apparel. Only let us be called by thy name to take away our reproach. Now, this has, obviously, a local application. Probably. (laughs) But as you know, I'm a mystic. And uh, you'd be disappointed in the Chuck Mister Bible study if I don't move out to left field now and then. And at the same time, this is the kind of thing that you either see or you don't. And if this bothers you, don't worry about it. But in chapter 4, verse 1, I'm fascinated by the fact we see these seven women. What's in the back of my mind, for some reason, are the seven letters to seven churches and the seven kingdom parables. And it's interesting that that day seven women shall take hold of one man. Who's the man? Jesus Christ, maybe. But what he's saying, we will eat our own bread. And wear our own apparel. Only let us be called by thy name. And I can't help but hear echoes of Sardis and what have you. Where they are Christian in name only. And uh, instead of eating the bread of life. And instead of putting on his righteousness. These women are eating their own bread. And wearing their own apparel. Remember the wedding guest that didn't have the peril provided by the host. He brought his own. Remember what happened to him. And so uh, it's interesting. But they want to still be called by thy name to take away our reproach. And if my analogy is correct, he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Possible. It's just a hint. It may be just coincidental. Really. So verse 2. In that day shall the branch of the Lord. Now here we have this wonderful name, the branch, the netzer. It's interesting, there are 20 different Hebrew words that can mean branch, but there's one word that's used several times in the Old Testament, meaning the Messiah. There's a play on Hebrew words, the Netzer is also the derivative from which he's called a Nazarene. It means the branch, the root of David, it's the title of Jesus Christ. In that day shall the branch of the Lord. And if you're familiar with Old Testament idioms, you know that that's a prophetic allusion to none other than the Messiah of Israel. That day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and splendid for those who are escaped of Israel. Really. Another dominant theme throughout Isaiah will be the remnant. That small minority of Israel that will not be deceived by the coming leader. There's a coming world leader that is going to be accepted by Israel as their Messiah. In John 5, 43, Jesus said, I have come in my Father's name and you receive me not. Another will come in his own name and him you will receive. We call this guy the Antichrist. That's unfortunate because it's a myopic term. The word Antichrist really means instead of Christ. 
pseudo-Christ. He is obviously against Christ, but that what the word originally meant in the Greek is something else. Of the uh, 50 titles of him in the uh, Bible, we've picked the one that is very narrow in its con- conception. This coming world leader is not just anti-Christ. He's anti-anything that's worshipped. Puts himself ahead of that. But in his initial stages, he's a peacemaker. He's the greatest problem solver the world's ever seen. He's charismatic, creative, and he solves problems no one else can. And he'll be embraced by the world as Mr. Neat Guy. And Israel will accept him as the Messiah, which probably means he's Jewish. And yet he also may be, if you have to do some eschatology in Islam, he will also probably be accepted by Islam as their Messiah. And that's going to cause some interesting aspects. That may be explained why, how, and where the temple will be built. There will be a small number, a remnant of Israel, that will recognize him for what he is and try to escape his influence, although it's with great difficulty because he will ultimately control the political, economic, and religious systems of the world. Verse 3, And it shall come to pass that who is left in Zion and he who remaineth in Jerusalem shall be called holy, and every one that is is, uh, written among the living. In Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and have purged the blood of Jerusalem from its midst by the spirit of justice and by the spirit of burning. Burning in the sense of a judgment of sin. And the Lord will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and a shining of flaming fire by night. And upon all the glory shall be a defense. What an interesting idiom. That phrase, of course, speaks of the Shekinah glory, the same manifestation that, first of all, uh, dealt with Israel when they were called out of Egypt, when they were born in effect as a nation. The pillar of fire by night and cloud by day that uh, thwarted Yul Brenner and his bunch, if you recall, speaking in the idiom of the famous movie. It's also the Shekinah glory that actually dwelt between the cherubim and the tabernacle. It's the Shekinah glory that filled Solomon's temple. And Ezekiel describes with great pain its leaving Solomon's temple when it was over. This was the Shekinah glory that did not inhabit Herod's temple. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.